Everyone knows that Hillary Clinton is evil. Many people even think that she might be a demon. What if I told you she might actually be one? She was basically born nine months after a sex magic summoning ritual designed to summon the Scarlet Whore of Babylon. I'm not even making this up. Actually, it was the Aleister Crowley protege, Jack Parsons, along with Scientology founder uh, L. Ron Hubbard, who wanted to summon the Antichrist, he wrote it in his own books, uh, that actually engaged in a sex magic ritual at the area that later became Area 51. Believe it or not, the dots just keep connecting as we go through the elite and their belief systems. It just seems to be the one thing that connects all of the other dots. So, as I said, the area that later became Area 51, they had three months of sex magic rituals out there in the desert, and then Hillary Clinton nine months later. Same thing with Barbara Bush, and we're going to go into a little bit about who Aleister Crowley was. Let's dive in. On October 26, 1947, Hillary Clinton was born. Just nine months before, a series of magical rituals had been performed at the location that would eventually become Area 51 by Jack Parsons and the founder of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard, whose stated goal was to bring about the Antichrist in his own writings. Now, this summoning or magical ritual was called a Babylon working, spelled B-A-B-A instead of B-A-B-Y, like we would traditionally see associated with Babylon, perhaps to mask the nature of this thing. But their stated goal for this particular ritual series was to summon the Scarlet Woman of Babylon, basically the Whore of Babylon, the Whore of the Apocalypse. Now, I can't prove that she's a demon yet, but this is a coincidence beyond the pale for me. And that's not all. As I mentioned, Barbara Bush is basically birds of a magical feather with Hillary Clinton, so to speak. They both came from these sex magic ritual summonings that were designed to bring about a demonic spirit. I'm going to read from an article posted at theserapium.com titled George W. Bush, Barbara Bush, and Aleister Crowley. Here we go. Few people understand that one of the most notorious individuals in British history may have contributed to the lineage of our current president. And this is written some time ago, clearly, so you know, writ written in a past tense. Bear that in mind as we continue. During the days of George Bush. Continuing on here, Aleister Crowley, also known as the Great Beast 666, in his own words, the infamous practitioner of sex magic, and that's spelled with a K at the end of the magic, as he wanted to differentiate from, you know, the, the, the Disney fake stuff from the real thing. And he added the K at the end and made it famous. And his motto was, do what thou wilt. Many Wiccans practice that today. And they came to know a great many remarkable people, including the maternal grandmother of George W. Bush. No, in this case, may be taken in the biblical sense. Evidence points to the disturbing possibility that he was the true father of Barbara Bush, the former first lady and mother to George W. Bush. The story may seem difficult to believe at first, until one learns about the social interrelations that tied together these unlikely parties. 
Specifically, we must focus on a fascinating woman named Pauline Pierce, born Pauline Robinson, whose third child was named Barbara. Most sources divulge little about this woman. We learn more about her husband, Marvin Pierce, the president of the McCall Corporation, which published McCall's magazine and Red Book. He married Pauline, a beautiful young socialite, in 1919. Their first child, Martha, was born the next year. The second, James, was born in 1921. At this time, Aleister Crowley inhabited what must have seemed a very different world as he embarked upon the great communal experiment of the Abbey of Thelema in Italy. Pauline, however, had a hidden side, what we might call a wild side. We get a whiff of this from the Wikipedia entry. W Magazine once described her as beautiful, fabulous, critical, and meddling, and a former beauty from Ohio with extravagant tastes. Rumors that Pauline had an affair with Dwight D. Eisenhower have never been verified. Still, gossip tabloids from the 40s often associated her with prominent men in politics and film. I have not been able to acquire independent confirmation, this is the author speaking, I'm just reading, of the Eisenhower liaison, although I personally see no reason to doubt that it existed. However, we may well have reason to believe that she began her experimental period before the 1940s. A sixth-level initiate within the OTO, or the Ordo Templi Orientis, the mystical society that Crowley came to lead in the 1920s, first set this author down the research path by revealing that Pauline Robinson had befriended a woman named Nellie O'Hara, an American adventuress who, at some point during her European travels, met the famed writer Frank Harris. Despite his advancing years, Harris still maintained a reputation for sexual excess that rivaled Crowley's. During this period, which was 1919 to 1927, Nellie and Frank Harris lived as man and wife, although they could not actually wed because Harris's second wife was still alive and would not grant a divorce. Harris and Crowley were good friends. Not only that, at this time, and not for the last time, Crowley was very much the proverbial friend in need. During the Abbey period, a Crowley follower had accidentally died during a magical ceremony. The incident created a firestorm of unwanted publicity. The sensationalist British press labeled Crowley the wickedest man in the world, which prompted Mussolini's government to expel Crowley and his followers from Italian soil. By 1924, he lived in poverty in France, where Frank Harris kindly took him under his roof. This arrangement inevitably brought Crowley into contact with Nelly. Crowley's diaries, to which this author had been given access, clearly indicate that he depended on Harris for financial assistance. One record says from January the 3rd, 1924, quote, No luck about cash yet, but FH promises 500 FR tomorrow so that I can bolt to Paris, one step onward to the establishment of the law of Thelema. The money soon ran out, and Aleister Crowley, as his associates called him, soon had to, or AC, as his associates called him, soon had to ask his friend for further assistance. At this time, Harris was writing his multi-volume erotic autobiography, My Life and Loves. He also purchased a newspaper, The Evening Telegram, but he lacked the resources and management skills to make the, resor the enterprise a success. 
and soon found himself in a financial position no better than Crowley's. I guess, you know, just kind of my own thoughts here, uh, if you're focused all the time on sex magic rituals, you're not very good at your job or in business. Just a thought. I don't know. Maybe there's something there. Continuing on. Despite his perilous economic circumstances, uh, Crowley focused his attention on sex magic. Not many years previously, he and a follower named Jean, or Jean Foster, a.k.a. Soror Hilarion, had conducted a sex magic, magical rite designed to give birth to a child destined to carry on Crowley's work. I have not been able, or this author has not been able to verify or determine whether he conducted similar experiments with Nellie, although given the polyamorous proclivities of all of the parties involved, one should not discount the possibility. Nellie's friend Pauline no doubt scandalized her social circle by traveling to France on her own and leaving two very young children in the care of nursemaids. However, her, her correspondence with her friend, whose life in France with a famous literary figure must have seemed quite glamorous, can only have inspired a sense of wanderlust. Her husband, increasingly bound to his duties with the McCall Corporation, did not share this spirit of adventure. Thus it was that four individuals came together, Frank Harris, Nellie O'Hara, Pauline Pierce, and Alistair Crowley. Anyone who has studied Crowley's life will understand that what happened next was, in a sense, inevitable. Crowley's diaries for this period record the initials PVN, a cryptic reference to his favorite sexual position, which some of his partners found distasteful. The letters derive from the Latin by way of the infernal entrance. I think we all know where that's going. This is a common annotation in the records of Crowley's magical practices. We also find the strange initials ECL. After researching the matter for some time, this author came to the conclusion that this was a reference to the practice known as erato comatose lucidity. Before proceeding, I should emphasize that the year 1924 has a special significance in the Crowley chronology. At this time, he is said to have undergone the supreme ordeal connected with his attainment of the grade of Ipsissimus, the highest magical achievement within his order. The exact nature of this ordeal remains mysterious but this author believed that an important clue could be found in his description of the rite of erotocomatose lucidity. And we continue, The candidate is made ready for the ordeal by general athletic training and by feasting. On the appointed day, he is attended by one or more chosen and experienced attendants, whose duty is a. to exhaust him sexually by every known means, b. to rouse him sexually by every known means. Every device and artifice of the courtesan or prostitute is to be employed, every stimulant known to the physician. Nor should the attendants wreck of danger, but hunt down ruthlessly their appointed prey. Basically, they're saying that they want to drug him, uh, you know, just basically continue to rape this person until they are exhausted to the point of death. So, uh, you know, that's, they're, they're saying it in a nicer way. And, you know, it's a willing rape. I mean, it's not like they're actually forcing him into it. This is part of what he wanted to do. This was his magical ritual. But uh, this, you know, little orgy going on here was uh, with a purpose, and it wasn't sex. 
Finally, the candidate will enter a sleep of utter exhaustion, resembling a coma, and it is now that delicacy and skill must be exquisite. Let him be roused from the sleep by stimulation of a definitely and exclusively sexual type. Yet, if convenient, music wisely regulated will assist. The attendants will watch with assiduity for signs of waking, and the moment these occur, all stimulation must cease instantly, and the candidate be allowed to fall again into sleep. But no sooner has this happened than the former practice is resumed. This alteration is to continue indefinitely until the candidate is in a state which is neither sleep nor waking, and in which his spirit, set free by perfect exhaustion of the body, and yet prevented from entering the city of sleep, communes with the Most High and the Most Holy Lord God of its being, maker of heaven and earth. Now I'm going to interject here and just mention that this is uh, kind of how the ritual worked and maybe what they believe, but they believe that uh, the fallen angels and the Nephilim are their gods, and I'm not sure it's the good guys that they're in touch with during these uh, naughty rituals. Just saying. Continuing on, the ordeal terminates by failure, the occurrence of sleep invincible, or by success, in which ultimate waking is followed by a final performance of the sexual act. The initiate may then be allowed to sleep, or the practice may be renewed and persisted in until death ends all. The most favorable death is that occurring during the orgasm and is called mors justi. As it is written, let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. If he did undergo this ordeal in 1924, then we must presume that his key associates of that time, including Nellie and Pauline, functioned as his assistants. Pauline returned to America in early October of 1924. On June 8, 1925, she gave birth to a girl named Barbara. Barbara Pierce married George H.W. Bush, who eventually became the 41st President of the United States. But who was Barbara's father? The chronology indicates that it could have been Crowley, but it could just as easily have been Marvin Pierce. The truth regarding Crowleyan sexual rituals is disclosed only to the highest initiates of the OTO. In a document misleadingly titled, Emblems and Modes of Use, is Alistair Crowley the father of Barbara Bush? Even she may not know for certain. Indeed, I have no way of knowing whether she has ever been told that this possibility exists. However, more than one person has noted the resemblance, and this resemblance is not just physical. Many will recall the former First Lady's haughty and thoughtless remarks in the aftermath of the Katrina disaster. Those in the know were reminded of Aleister Crowley's similar reaction to the loss of life which occurred during the ascent of Keng Cheng Junga, an expedition he commanded. Quote, this is precisely the sort of thing with which I have no sympathy whatsoever. End quote. I leave the matter for the reader to decide. Just who was Aleister Crowley, who named himself the Beast of the Apocalypse? It was Aleister Crowley's own mother, an almost repressively religious woman, who had given him the name of the Beast 
when she realized that she had spawned a monster. At the tender age of 11, he had dedicated himself to a life of evil, which was later to embrace every excess from sexual perversion to live sacrifices. His first victim was the family cat. He was eager to discover whether it had nine lives. His voracious appetite for women started when he was 14, when he seduced the kitchen maid on his mother's bed while the family were at church. From then on, he enjoyed an endless succession of whores and mistresses. Women were fascinated by his animal vitality and hypnotic eyes. There was certainly danger and excitement when Crowley was around, but his women paid dearly for their thrills. He drove both of his wives into lunatic asylums and abandoned every one of his mistresses to either the bottle, the hypodermic syringe, or the streets. Sex was the most powerful element in Crowley's form of black magic, which might explain why he failed his degree at Cambridge University. By then, he had become obsessed with the occult, the blinding revelation that put Crowley's life on a new and dangerous path occurred on March 18, 1904, in the Cairo Museum when he was 28 years old. A few days earlier, his wife Rose had remarked as if in a trance, quote, Horace is waiting for you, end quote. Crowley had never heard of Horace. Suddenly, as they were walking through one of the museum galleries, she cried out, there he is. In a glass case was an image of the falcon-headed god Horus, painted on an ancient wooden obelisk. But what shook Crowley was the number of the exhibit label. It was 666, his number, the number of the beast. That night, in a state approaching religious exaltation, Crowley invoked the spirit of Horus, and his faith was rewarded. According to Crowley, Horus sent a spirit guide named Awas, who proceeded to dictate a series of precepts and prophecies. Then, over several weeks, Crowley incorporated the supernatural messages into a huge volume called the Book of the Law. The result was an almost unreadable ragbag of mysticism, poetry, prediction, and pornography. But the ultimate meaning was clear. Mankind was on the brink of a new dawn, and the prophet selected to lead the way was Alistair Crowley himself. Crowley threw himself into his new position with manic fervor. The horror was that he was a messiah of madness, marching backwards to the black ages of cruelty, superstition, and diabolism. His behavior became more and more outrageous. He filed two of his teeth to a point, so that he could give women the serpent's kiss when introduced. He defecated on drawing room carpets, and when his hosts protested, he claimed his excreta was sacred. He toured the world, collecting a retinue of gullible sensation seekers, neurasthenics and occult cranks. At his temples of magic, newspapers referred in shocked tones to nameless orgies and indescribable rites. His followers claimed that he could conjure up evil spirits, turn day into night, and perform prodigious feats of second sight and clairvoyance. All his rituals, however, centered around sex. Quote, I rave, I rape, I rip, I rend, he said in his hymn to Pan. References to magic, opuses, and my work 
were euphemisms to cover ceremonial sexual acts with his followers, usually perverted and frequently with several partners at the same time. In the 1920s, as Crowley was at the height of his notoriety, nobody wanted him. Authorities in Italy had had enough and expelled him from the country. He was deported from France and, for a time, refused entry to Britain. He had become a Satan without a hell to go to. Slowly, the world began to forget about Aleister Crowley. A new beast of the apocalypse had arisen in the West, who flaunted Crowley's favorite symbol of the crooked cross, or swastika. His name was Adolf Hitler, and his murderous rites were to make Crowley's contrived orgies look like nursery games. Crowley then devoted himself to publishing, usually at his own expense, pornographic and pseudo-mystical books. One didn't have to read the books to guess their contents. The dust jackets wore Crowley's signature with the initial A in the form of a huge phallus. On December 1st, 1947, in obscure poverty in a boarding house, Aleister Crowley died of myocardial degeneration and chronic bronchitis. He was dependent on a daily dose of 11 injected grains of heroin, enough to kill a dozen men. Now, that's the end of the article, but I will add that 1947 December is right after he created Barbara Bush, apparently. Also, myocardial degeneration is fancy for your heart began to fall apart or disintegrate, which is a fitting in for a monster like this who focused his life on sin and was proud of his lack of compassion. But apparently he had served his purpose for his evil masters, apparently, and they soon left him to die penniless and alone, with none of his sex magic ritual friends there to comfort him. So now you know the story, the deep intrigue of the Bushes, the Clintons, and the Crowleys. What's really going on here? What do they really believe? The answers are available at theserapium.com, and I suggest the map post. It's quite good and getting better all the time. theserapium.com slash map. If you want to support what we're doing, you can do so through our links for donation or for our sponsors like redpillliving.com slash nemos. Please help us to share theserapium.com, the hidden history of mankind, and the mystery Babylon religion of the deep state. All of that censored knowledge, and if you thought the fake news was bad today, wait until you see history. Folks, it is bad, but we are putting it back together and connecting the dots. The old world is the new world. That's what they're planning to bring us back into. All of this is available at theserapium.com. Their new world order is based on the old world order, and they're not hiding it very well.